So, interestingly, I often begin my talks with a question that Douglas answered already. So, but I think it's worth thinking about the question, which is, what is the most popular political idea in the world? What is the most popular political idea in the world? And I think it's indisputably the idea that we should rapidly eliminate fossil fuel use. Because if you look at what idea do, does just about every government in the world agree to? It's net zero carbon neutral. These are just different ways of saying rapidly eliminate fossil fuel use, or at least the vast majority of it. And you know, governments say this, corporations say this, financial institutions say this, the whole basis of what's called the ESG, environmental social governance movement. Like the central idea is get rid of fossil fuels as soon as possible. That's what it means to be good environmentally is to be in one way or another anti-fossil fuels. Um, and so what I'm gonna to argue today is interesting because most of the response to this argument, if there is a response, there's not enough of a response, is this idea is going too far. So no, we can't get rid of fossil fuels by 2050, so maybe 2060 or 2065. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually arguing that no, in the next several decades, we should actually be increasing fossil fuel use. So by the time we get to 2050, a better world will be a world that uses more fossil fuels, at least on that time frame. And so I'm really saying that the, the most popular political idea in the world is 180 degrees wrong. So I'm not just saying it's partially wrong, I'm saying the exact opposite of right, it's the wrong direction. They're saying get rid of it, and I'm saying use more of it. And so there is a certain kind of burden of proof on that, to say like, okay, well, every one of these leading institutions that supposedly speak for ex all experts are saying this one thing, and you're saying the exact opposite. Like, how can this be? And I think the, the way that this can be true, so we see times in history where majorities are wrong, when we're told what the experts think is wrong. This definitely happens, it doesn't always happen, but it sometimes happens. Um, like you see this with, for instance, like racism, you know, racism at one point was dominant, including many people in the, you know, science at different times advocated racism. And now you think, well, this doesn't make any sense, and this is wrong, and this is unjust. But yet, so-called the experts believed in it. Um, and I think a lot about how does this happen, and when, when do you know kind of the experts are, so the experts are wrong, and when are they right? And I think one thing to understand about this is what we're told the experts think is very different from, or is at least often very different from what actual researchers think. So when we're told what the experts think, who's telling us? Like it's the New York Times, it's Al Gore, it's different intermediaries. And in the book Fossil Future, which I'm really happy you all have a copy of, I talk about what I call a knowledge system. So this is a set of institutions that sort of connects us to the people actually doing research, research in the field. And my basic connection, my basic contention is that system is a total failure. And it's a failure in two regards. One is that insofar as it's dealing with anything scientific, it dramatically distorts what actual researchers say. So I'm gonna argue it totally distorts, for example, what good climate researchers say. But I think the most, the most dramatic distortion of all is that the method by which it evaluates fossil fuels as good or bad makes no sense. And this is, this is where I get really interested because my background is philosophy. And philosophy is considered the most impractical field uh, when it comes to energy, and I consider it the most practical field. So I was once in, in front of the Senate and Barbara Boxer, like she said, Mr. Epstein, are you a, my name is Epstein, by the way, I'm not related to Jeffrey. Uh, Mr. Epstein, are you a scientist? And I said, no, I'm a philosopher. She said, oh, it's interesting we have a philosopher, like why would you do that? And I said, well, it's to teach you how to think more clearly, which she didn't like, but that was true. And her staff laughed at her, which is a highlight of my career. So 
but that is really true. So philosophy studies the fundamental ideas that guide our thinking and action, and one crucial thing it studies is thinking methods. And I have a contention, which is that the way people think about fossil fuels makes no sense and cannot be defended. So the way people think about fossil fuels makes no sense and cannot be defended. And I can illustrate this very simply. I'm going to give you a thinking method for fossil fuels that nobody has ever disagreed with in all of my experience articulating this method, and yet virtually no leading, quote, expert on this issue follows it at all. So this is a thinking method nobody will dispute, and yet almost nobody follows. It's very simple. It's the method of carefully weighing benefits and side effects. So you think about applied to a prescription drug. What do you do, right? You, you consider the benefits. You try to consider them carefully. You consider the side effects. You compare that to the alternatives, and you make a decision. Does anyone disagree with this? Does anyone think, OK, you should only pay attention to the side effects and not the benefits? No, right? You could die. Or should you only pay attention to the benefits and not the side effects? No, you could die. Or should you overstate the benefits? No. Should you overstate the side effects? No. Should you understate them? No. Right? So everyone agrees with this. And yet my contention is that when it comes to fossil fuels, there is an enormous tendency to ignore or deny the enormous benefits, including, I'm going to argue, climate-related benefits, and then to exaggerate or what I call catastrophize the side effects. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to share with you I think there are three components, three key components of this method when it comes to fossil fuels, and in particular, fossil fuels and climate. Today, I'm just going to focus on fossil fuels and climate. So there are other side effects of fossil fuels, like there's air pollution potential, water pollution potential. But these are not the things that are causing people to want to end fossil fuels. And we're also very, very good at dealing with them. So you can ask about those, but I think the main thing is climate. People think fossil fuels have climate side effect. It's very dangerous. We need to get rid of it quickly, and that's why we need to start uh, stop using fossil fuels. So my contention is, yeah, carefully weigh the benefits and side effects. So that's the highest level idea. And then it breaks down into three things. And I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is give you three ideas or three principles it breaks down into, and nobody has ever disputed these again. And then I'm going to just share with you some facts. And I actually think once you follow these principles, it's obvious that we should use more fossil fuels. And it's obvious that net zero is one of the most destructive ideas in human history. So I think it all comes down to the thinking methods. That's why I'm focused on that. So I'm going to just overview, and then I'll dive into each one. So the, the three thinking the three principles of carefully weighing benefits and side effects are one is factor in the benefits of fossil fuels. Two is, fa and I'll explain each of these, but fact two is factor in the climate, what I call climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. And then three is um, consider the climate side effects with even-handedness and precision. I'll, I'll break that down. But consider the side effects with even-handedness, looking at negative and positive and precision. Okay, so first let's start off with look at the benefits of fossil fuels. It's pretty obvious that if you're considering the side effects on climate, you need to think of the benefits. And I think there are a couple facts here that are instructive when we're looking at the benefits of fossil fuels. Because I think the benefits, like the way I put it sometimes, is I think losing fossil fuels, I'm as afraid of losing fossil fuels as Greta Thunberg is of climate change. Like I think the fate of the world depends on using and expanding fossil fuels. So there are three basic facts underlying the benefits of fossil fuels. So one is that fossil fuels are a uniquely cost-effective source of energy. Uniquely cost-effective source of energy. By cost-effective, I mean four things. So they're affordable. So a typical person can afford to use quite a bit. Reliable. They can be used when needed in the quantity needed. Versatile. Able to power every type of machine. So able to power airplanes and cargo ships and you know everything, not just stationary electrical devices, which are about, that's about one-fifth of the world's energy today. And then scalable, able to provide energy for billions of people in thousands of places. 
So I argue fossil fuels are uniquely cost effective. Why do I say that? Well, fossil fuels are 80% of the world's energy today, despite having aggressive competition for over a century and enormous political opposition for the past couple of decades. They're still 80% of the world's energy, so that's a big sign. They are still growing. So despite all this opposition and all this competition, they're still growing in the world and they're growing particularly in the parts of the world that care most about cost-effective energy. So I'd say the part of the world that cares most about cost-effective energy is China. And China is often heralded for, oh, they're such a leader in solar and wind. But what they're really a leader in is producing solar and wind and selling it to us. And how do they make that solar and wind? Does anyone know what their dominant fuel? Coal. Yeah, so China has more new coal. So this is not their existing coal, which is huge. They have more new coal in the process of being built than we have coal, period. So China hasn't gotten the memo. If solar and wind are superior to fossil fuels, why are they using coal to produce solar and wind and selling it to us, right? So there's something very special about fossil fuels. that And then there's this claim, well, solar and wind are rapidly replacing fossil fuels. This is demonstrably untrue. Fossil fuels are growing. You can't be rapidly replaced if you're growing. And if you look at solar and wind, they're not replacing fossil fuels in a free market way insofar as they are in any given area. They're definitely not overall. What you see is they're being used in significant quantities only when there's a lot of government preferences. So that's not a sign that you're cost effective when you need massive government preferences. People say solar and wind are so cheap, but we need to give them all these special favors. We need to allow them, for example, they get to sell unreliable electricity to the grid for the same price as reliable electricity. This makes no sense. I mean, imagine you go to a car rental place and you have to pay the same for a car that works a third of the time and a car that works all the time. Like nobody would ever do this, but this is what the privilege we give solar and wind. And then on top of that, we give them massive subsidies. We just had this thing called the Inflation Reduction Act that was supposedly just $400 billion and ends up being trillions of dollars. If you're so superior, why do you need subsidies? So you get to see fossil fuels are actually uniquely cost effective. And we talk about it in the question period why, but it's very important to recognize they're uniquely cost-effective form of energy. So that's fact one about the benefits of fossil fuels. Um, fact two is cost-effective energy is what I call essential to human flourishing. So I talked about cost-effective energy. By human flourishing, I mean humans living to their full potential, which includes having long lives, healthy lives, and opportunity-filled lives. So long lives, healthy lives, opportunity-filled lives. And the basic reason is, is pretty simple, although I talk about it for 90 pages in the book because there's a lot to say about it. But basically, the more cost-effective energy is, so the more affordable, reliable, versatile, and scalable energy is, the more we can use machines. Because energy is machine food or machine calories. So the cheaper energy is, the cheaper it is to use machines. And then when we use machines, we can become truly productive and prosperous. You know, Before we, human beings could use machines on a large scale, everyone was poor because the earth is a, doesn't give us much in the way of usable resources. It gives us a lot of threats and we're physically weak. So we just were in this terrible predicament where the average person lived to 30, thousands and thousands of years going back because we live on a very deficient and dangerous planet and human beings weren't productive. The only way we overcame that and made this planet an abundant and safe place for billions of people is using machines. But the only way we can use machines is if the energy is affordable and reliable and versatile and scalable. So my basic contention is that this is why I say I think it's as significant as Greta thinks of as climate change, because I literally think that, that fossil fuels have made the world livable. Like they've taken a world that we would consider unlivable and they've made it livable. And so we have fossil fuels are uniquely cost-effective source of energy. Cost-effective energy is essential to human flourishing. So this already means it's really important. And then fact three is that billions of people lack cost-effective energy. 
so think about this, billions of people lack cost-effective energy. We have three billion people on the planet who use less electricity than a typical American refrigerator does. So think about it, like a person, all your electricity is a refrigerator, like is in what we use for a refrigerator. You have um, about a third of the world is using wood and animal dung as their primary fuel for heating and cooking. So you just think about what that's like, how little energy that is, how much pollution that is. That's a third of the world. Six billion people, so three quarters of the world, use an amount of energy we would consider totally unacceptable. So I think it's really powerful just if you look at these three facts about the benefits. So it's so, so common to not talk about the benefits of fossil fuels. And yet, I think if you look at the facts, they're clearly uniquely cost-effective. Cost-effective energy is essential for human beings to be able to flourish, and it's desperately needed around the world. So what this means is that whatever the climate consequences of fossil fuels, losing fossil fuels, having anything like a net zero timetable, would be ruinous for basically everyone in the world. So we're gonna talk about the side effects in a second, but it's really important, like the benefit of fossil fuels is like a livable world for billions of people. It's, it's on that scale. And what I found so striking and, and upsetting in my research about this issue is that the leading people don't talk about the benefits at all. They're talking about just, hey, let's get rid of fossil fuels. It'll be easy to replace. Like there's no evidence that it's easy to replace. They've been claiming this for 20 years and they still can't even stop the growth of fossil fuels. And la in the last year, they caused a global energy crisis through their restrictions on fossil fuels and they haven't even stopped fossil fuels from growing. So the net zero agenda hasn't even stopped the growth of fossil fuels and it's caused a global crisis. Just by, slow, just, just by slowing the growth, they caused a global crisis in a world that needs more energy. So an example I give in Fossil Future I think is instructive, because you see it all over the place. But one of the leading thinkers on what to do about fossil fuels is a guy named Michael Mann. So he's a climate scientist and he's an activist, and he has a book on fossil fuels and climate called The Madhouse Effect, which he, he's trying to tell the whole public, hey, here's what a scientist thinks about this issue and what you should do. And in his book, he talks about agriculture, which is important because fossil fuels have a lot to do with agriculture. Um, and especially fossil fuels have to do with agriculture in the sense of the fertilizer we get from natural gas is essential to feeding 8 billion people. And then the diesel fuel from oil allows us to run things like a combine harvester that can reap and thresh as much wheat as 1,000 manual laborers. So, Fossil fuels are incredibly crucial, so you would expect, well, a really smart scientist would talk about this along with talking about any of the negatives. Like if, if we make it warmer, it's gonna make it harder to grow crops in certain places. But his entire book, he does not mention fertilizer or diesel fuel ones. He does not mention the benefits of fossil fuels at all. So this is one of the leading guys in the world. Fossil fuels literally make it possible to have an abundant and safe world, including a world where people can eat. Like without the benefits we get from them that we have no near-term replacement for, billions of people would starve, and he doesn't even mention it once. So this is outrageous, and, and it's real proof that we're in a society where people are not thinking about this in the right way. So it doesn't matter how many credentials you have, how much you know about specifics, if you're committing an error on this scale, like there's something really wrong. And you can ask me in the question period or read chapter three for why this happens, but I just want to establish that it's happening. So we've gotten, like this first idea, the benefits of fossil fuels are really like an abundant and safe world for billions of people. That's what the benefits are that we would lose if we've pursued any of these net zero policies. Now, the second thing I mentioned, so that's factor in the benefits. I mentioned you have to factor in the climate mastery benefits. This is really important. 
uh, because when we talk about fossil fuels and climate, there's a tendency to just talk about negative effects on climate. But you think about a key fact about fossil fuels and climate is one of the main things we do with fossil fuels is we neutralize climate danger. So think about what we do with fossil fuels. We make it warm when it's cold. We make it cool when it's hot. But we also do things like we build sturdy buildings. We power storm and build storm warning systems. Uh, for drought, for example, this might be the biggest. We, do, we power irrigation systems. We power crop transport to prevent drought-related death. And yet, this is very, very rarely talked about. So, but this is really important. So a huge use of fossil fuels is, climate, is neutralizing climate danger, what I call climate mastery. And yet, this is almost never talked about. And is it almost never talked about because it's not very significant? No. This is fact number two. Fossil fuels climate mastery benefits have clearly been far greater than any negatives. And the reason we know why is because we can calculate how many people have died from climate-related disasters. And the rate of climate-related disaster death has gone down by 98% in the last 100 years. So think about this. 98%, that means a typical person is 1 50th as likely to die from a climate disaster. This is averaged all around the world than they were 100 years ago. And it clearly has to do with a lot of fossil fuel use. Like it's, I mentioned drought, you know, drought related death is down over 99% in particular. And a lot of it is because we have irrigation systems largely powered by fossil fuels and we have uh, crop transport so that a place with a good harvest can help a drought stricken area. And yet this is not talked about at all. And this is fact three. So we've got a crucial benefit of fossil fuels is climate mastery. This benefit has been far greater than any negatives. And then fact three is our leading experts do not talk about it. So did anyone hear recently in the news there was a, a UN report, it's called the synthesis report. You might have seen maybe four weeks ago or so. And it's like the UN says the world is gonna end. You know, Leading climate scientists say the world is gonna end. You know, A livable planet is at risk. And I read this thing, which you know, you're welcome because it's very unpleasant to read. And I just think like, how can you guys not even just read chapter one of Fossil Future or think any common sense? Because the whole thing was total fossil fuel benefit denial. It said nothing in the whole thing about the benefits of fossil fuels. And it said nothing about the fact that we're safer than ever from climate. And it said nothing about the climate mastery benefits of fossil fuels. So it gave the impression that climate is more dangerous than ever and fossil fuels are to blame, even though climate is safer than ever and fossil fuels should get a lot of the credit. So I think of this as just as bad as if you had a report on the state of polio, and it didn't mention that polio was at an all-time low or near that, and because of polio vaccines and sanitation. They didn't mention any of that. And they made you think, oh, polio is worse than ever. That's like the state of climate. And this is the leading group in the world. The UN's was called Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC. And even if you look at their thousands of pages of reports, which is pain, another kind of pain, they don't mention climate mastery at all. They don't mention decline in climate-related disaster deaths. They have thousands of pages and they don't mention this very documented fact. So, you know, so far we have these two principles nobody will disagree with. We have to factor in the benefits of fossil fuels, which are enormous. It's really an abundant and safe world versus an impoverished world. And then the climate mastery benefits, which are enormous, which allow us to deal with any kind of climate problem we've had so far. And yet the world is in denial about them. And so then this, this is the context in which we have to look at the idea of three, which is looking at the climate side effects. We have to do it with even-handedness and precision. And again, nobody disagrees with this, but almost nobody uh, does it. So even-handedness, I mean, you have to look at negatives and positives. There's a huge tendency just to look at negatives. Like with warming, 
People just think warming is bad. But what about all the deaths saved from cold by warming in a world where more people die from cold than from heat? Like, why isn't that discussed? Or what about the benefits of greening? So you can see with all these issues, there's a bias against the benefits of fossil fuels, right? People don't think about the benefits, they don't think about the climate mastery benefits, and they don't think about the beneficial climate impacts. And I find that when somebody is ignoring the benefits of something, it usually means that they have a big bias that's gonna cause them to exaggerate the side effects or the negative. So if, you know, I, just a kind of example, if you meet somebody, let's say you meet somebody, and his mother-in-law has given the family like a million dollars and gotten them this amazing house. And all he has to say is negative stuff about the mother-in-law and never mentions the million dollars of the house. Would you trust what he says about the mother-in-law? Probably not, you'd say this person is biased. And I think it's the same thing here. And so it should be no surprise that the same institutions that ignore the benefits of fossil fuels that literally make life possible and make our climate safe are distorting the side effects. So here are just a, a couple of facts about the side effects that I, these are all based on mainstream climate science. So one is just how much warming there's been. So we've had about one degree Celsius of warming, two degrees Fahrenheit in the last 170 years on a planet where far more people die from cold than from heat. So it's important, we've had warming on a planet where far more people still die from cold than from heat today. So that's one fact that's really important to be clear on what has happened and what hasn't happened. The next fact is how, the, how warming has been distributed and is expected to be distributed. Because people think, well, warming is gonna just make the center of the, you know, the equator really hot and everyone's gonna die from heat. But actually, mainstream climate science, including the Biden administration, if you look at what their scientists actually say, says that warming is concentrated more in colder places during colder times of day and during colder times of year. Right, so it's more northern latitudes in particular, it's more at night, and it's more in winter. So that's even more benign, the warming that has occurred and that is expected to um, occur. And yet this isn't mentioned. And then the third fact is that if you look at even the UN IPCC, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, like if you look at their projections, but if you look at their actual scientific projections, even though there are a lot of biases, nothing that they project scientifically would be a problem if you factor in climate mastery, or a big problem, let's say. So when you hear all these disastrous scenarios like, oh, the scientists say X, it's because they're ignoring climate mastery. They're pretending that human beings are just a bunch of idiots. And so then they just say, oh, well, if this changes, then human beings aren't gonna be able to do anything. Like there was one claim of, oh, we're gonna have 170 million refugees uh, because of some climate change. But then if you look at the actual study, it said, yes, there will be 170 million if human beings don't adapt, which they definitely will. But this wasn't publicized. It said if they will, it was on the order of less than a million but less than a million people have to move over a long period of time. That's just a very normal thing in the course of human events. So what I found that's so striking is that all of this really comes down to philosophy and thinking methods. Because if you use the right thinking method in terms of carefully weighing benefits and side effects, if you factor in the benefits of fossil fuels, if you factor in the climate mastery benefits, and then if you look at the side effects with even handedness and precision, like you can be really confident that fossil fuels not only have made the world a much better place, including safer from climate, but that continuing to use them and being free to expand their use will make it better in the future. And that's my basic conclusion. Um, one thing about the precision, by the way, is there's a, just a, a tendency of people to take something that ha and just totally exaggerate the state of research. Like sea level rises, I think is the biggest one where Al Gore's movie makes us think we're gonna have 20 foot sea level rises in a couple, decades and actually extreme projections by the UN are three feet in a century. And right now we have about one foot per century. Like it's just totally unforgivable to do this, but it's part of this ignoring the benefits and then what I call catastrophizing 
the side effects. So this is why I believe really strongly and fight for this, that um, number one is trying to convince people to think of it in the way that I'm thinking about it. I think that's most of the battle, and I encourage you to do that when you're persuading people. And then number two is just being aware of these basic facts. These are all based on mainstream sources or usually primary sources. They're all in Fossil Future, but they're all also on a website I'd highly encourage you to check out, which is free called energytalkingpoints.com. So at your table, you'll see there are cards. Hopefully you got your I Love Fossil Fuels pins, but there are also cards to fill out. And the number one thing to do with those is just put your name and email. That way you can be on my list. You'll get new talking points every week and you'll get a list of resources that you can share with anyone. And these, as Douglas generously mentioned, these are resources that have affected millions of people and they can make you powerful because you can learn a lot, but you can also just share the resources directly with people. In the age of the internet, we have a free printing press and we need to take advantage of it. I think these arguments are true. They're common sense, they're persuasive, and you have the ability to spread them to a lot of people. We're also at a period of time where people are more open than ever to these arguments. Certainly in the 16 years I've been on this topic, because we have a global energy crisis and people are now willing to question the establishment, which they might not have been five years ago. So I hope what I've, what I've tried to give you today is a way of thinking about this issue uh, that really makes a lot of sense that nobody can dispute and then showing the basic facts that, that prove that actually fossil fuels are really good. And you know, the implication of that is not only use fossil fuels, but it's that we need freedom. I mean, this is what the Mississippi, what this institute is about is freedom. So I want the freedom for fossil fuels and other forms of energy. But what I want to stop doing is restrict fossil fuels and then force inferior energy schemes on people. That is incredibly destructive and I believe um, immoral. So if you get the idea of the, of the thinking method and you understand the basic facts and then you share this with the world, uh, you can help me, I think, make the world a better place through more fossil fuels and more freedom. And I think you'll really enjoy it as well. So thanks for having me and I would love to take any questions. I say a hand up. I'd be curious on your uh, observations and comments on what you've heard and some of the questions yesterday at Mississippi State with, with I'm assuming your students, I'm just curious what your reaction was and what you think your reception was. Okay, I'm really trying to get a video of this. So this is one of my favorite days ever. Um, for an interesting reason, because you might not think it was. So I, I go into the event. First of all, I had a great day on campus. I got to have a good conversation with the administration, and then I had to mix her with some like 30 students or something. But then I, I get into the main room, which is a big hall. There's a lot of students in it and people filing in. And then I'm told, hey, guess what? They're staging a walk. There's some students and they're going to stage a walkout of your talk. You know, which means that in the, when you talk. You're gonna be talking there, and then at a certain point, they're gonna stand up and yell something and flee, and then it's gonna, you know, I guess rattle you or something, that's the, that's the idea. So, um, which for me, like, I do really well in these situations, so I, I love any kind of attack, because it just makes it easier for me to make my point. So, I, and they had a pamphlet about me, like, this guy shouldn't be here and stuff, so I just, at the beginning, instead of starting with my speech, I just said, hey, I know a bunch of you are planning to walk out, um, why don't you right now share any objections you have now or any questions you have now and so then i'll try to address them in my presentation and maybe you can hear my perspective and they were super meek about it you know they're super they're planning they're super meek about it and like a couple of them had a couple of things i'm like okay i'll address those and really that's it guys that's all you have and okay you're really going to walk out and so then i went into the middle of it and i gave a similar thing today a little bit different order but the basic principles of it and i said repeatedly look i do think human beings impact climate but i don't think it's a catastrophic impact and i think the benefits are far more significant and then just 
they just had a scheduled time where they stood up and it was something like, hey, hey, ho, ho's, hey, hey, ho, ho, fossil fuels have got to go. So it's a totally, I don't know, it was like, but it's like, we don't deny, it's like, called me a climate change denier, even though I had repeatedly refuted that like eight times, so they weren't listening. And so they just, uh, they started walking out and I just sat down on the stage and watched them for a minute and was bored. And then I got back up and then you could tell the audience was really unimpressed by them and it really helped the people, and only 20 or so people walked out. So it was really useful, I think, for them to see how I gave the people a chance and how they didn't really have anything to say. And then there are a couple of people stayed and then I really gave them a chance to voice things too. But I think the students can see like, wow, these guys, like this guy really has the answers to all of this stuff. And the people who left didn't really seem to care about the truth. They just seemed to have a pre-existing agenda. So in general, I find that students are open and, and the way I'll present it, you know, use slides and show data is effective, but it's, it's always more effective if you can get attacked and handle it well. Now, the least effective is if you get attacked and handle it poorly, uh, but fortunately, I'm pretty well trained. So it was, it was a great experience, and I'm, I just hope we got a good video of it. That's my, that's my only concern. I, I hope you're not attacked here today. Uh, I don't think that'd be a that would be more surprising. <laughs> um, the gentleman there. Yeah, I mean, when I started, I guess the, the first really prominent thing I had on this was the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which came out in 2014. And one of my goal, I had a few goals in terms of groups I wanted to engage. And one of them was people in the impoverished world or what I call the unempowered world. And we've been seeing some good engagement. I mean, I still want more, but there are more and more people, uh, particularly in Africa, some in India, who are talking about this. And I try to give them even more of a platform uh, because it's, it's really, really important. So you know, if you if you follow me on Twitter at Alex Epstein, like you'll see, sometimes I'll promote different kinds of African voices and Indian voices, because what I'd say is, look, it's good for me to say this, but it's the people there have the most credibility. So if you guys stand up, if you guys don't stand up, then who's going to really believe me? So we're seeing people standing up, and fortunately, using these arguments. So I think it's it's a growing thing, and it's something I'm trying to facilitate. Also, I'm really happy to say the industry has improved. It's not nearly good enough. But it's really improved since I started. And today, in fact, I'm flying after this to Midland, Texas for an event called Fossil Fueled the Concert. So it's, it's, it's a corporate sponsored event. It's the only one I've ever seen that's truly proudly pro-fossil fuels. So I'm very excited about that. And even in politics, which has been the hardest for me to crack now, I work with this thing, Energy Talking Points. We work kind of behind the scenes consulting with offices. And we have 200 offices that are part of our group, like US Congress, US Senate, and governor's offices. So we've been able to make huge, huge traction. And a lot of it has been making the point super accessible. So I recommend this site, energytalkingpoints.com, because it takes all the points I gave today and you know a 1,000 more, and it makes them the length of a tweet. It gives you good references, often graphics. So I, I really tried to. And I think of myself as a tool maker or a resource creator, and I try to create resources that everyone can use to become more effective. Gentlemen? Yes, you.
It's a really interesting question. I, mean, I think one thing I'll say though is the more, it's pretty shocking how effective it is just to make it explicit that you should carefully weigh benefits and side effects. I mean, that to me is the most effective thing. That's why I always start with it. Because it's just generically, it's easy for people to fall into bad thinking habits and not know that they're thinking about something badly. And when that happens, like often people are not using what they would consider common sense in in their thinking. This is, there's an expression, you know, common sense is not always common practice. So it's notable that if just by bringing this up, so this doesn't answer your question, but I'll answer it in a second, but it's really notable, like just by knowing that people aren't carefully weighing the benefits and side effects and are just looking at side effects and exaggerating them and ignoring benefits, if you know that, you can frame your communications a lot more effectively because you can get everyone to agree, hey, shouldn't we look at both benefits and side effects? And they'll agree and they'll actually follow it much more in practice than they otherwise would. Um, I think there's a bunch of reasons. I talk about this in chapter three. I think one thing that's notable is, I think one thing that's been particularly effective is the, uh, this is broader thing, the anti-capitalist movement has been good at owning the issue of a good environment. And that I think this is a real problem because a good environment, that issue should belong to pro-capitalism people because pro-capitalism people are for, are for property rights, which is the whole basis of actually having an environment that's good for human beings. Like as the basis of saying, hey, look, you can't emit X in the air and water beyond certain limits because that's violating people's property rights, including to their air and their land and their water. And it's the basis of people making their environments good, right? When it's your property, you'll actually make it good. And it, it allows us to develop our environments into abundant and safe places in, instead of the quote natural world where everyone suffered or almost everyone suffered for you know, endless thousands of years. Um, so, but, but the, the anti-capitalist movement in the 60s and 70s, it did a really good job of owning the issue of a good environment. And the real goal of it, I believe, was not a good environment for humans but was to just protect the rest of nature from humans. I think it's a very anti-human view, which I talk about in the book. Um, but I don't think the pro-capitalist side did a good job of saying, hey, look, we want an amazing world. Like, we want a world where it's beautiful and we have clean air and clean water. And so the other side got associated with a good environment. And then, and, and if, 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 if you get associated with a bad environment, people are legitimately afraid of that because your environment is where you live. Like, if you have a fundamentally bad environment, you really can't live. So this, I think this other movement got a really good job of saying, hey, we're for a good environment and the other side is against it. And if you listen to them, the world is gonna end. And the more you think about it's gonna destroy our environment, the world is gonna end, the less you can even think about the benefits of fossil fuels because you're just like, this is like the AOC thing, you know, hey, the world is gonna end in 12 years and you're talking about the price. It's like you make this unlimited side effect. So there's a lot going on, but that's part of it. Sort of as a follow up to that, um is the real issue logic versus illogic? Or is it that these leftist organizations are so heavily funded by the government, the government is in effect the you know, referee in a fight, but the government's on their side. In addition, what maybe their motive isn't so much environmentalism as it is just for government control. And is it possible that that's really what we're fighting against? How do we address that? There's a lot there to what you're saying. I think it's a lot of truth there. So and this is kind of the, the issue I tackle in chapter three of Fossil Future, because there's this question of why, you mentioned is it an issue of logic versus illogic? And I, and, I, and I keep saying nobody disagrees with this method. So 
it's really weird. Like, why would you have people who are following an obviously wrong method who know a lot of facts? If it's the general public, you can just say, well, they don't know the facts, right? They don't know the facts about the benefits. They don't know the facts about climate mastery. They don't know the facts about the actual effects on climate versus what's exaggerated. But a lot of the so-called experts, they do know. And they've been, so it's not like they have no idea you're supposed to carefully weigh benefits and side effects. In a sense, that's obvious, right? So it's, it's a good question to think about what's behind that. And I, I, I talk about in the book two answers. I think that the power is part of it. But I don't think it's just, there's the power in terms of, yeah, the gut, like certain people want control. But I think a lot of what animates it today is really a hatred of human impact on nature. So I think this is a real root cause where people hold the belief that human impact on nature is evil and that a good earth is one with as little human impact as possible. And if you have that view, you will be very, not only anti-fossil fuels, but anti-freedom. Because if people are left free, they'll impact the earth a lot. So I think a lot of these people, yeah, they want power themselves, but I think more broadly, the group of people, they want human beings to be unempowered. They want human beings to be less of a presence. That's why, for example, like they, they think of today's climate as terrible, and yet we're safer from climate than ever. Why is that? Because they're, when they're looking at climate, they're not measuring it by how good is it for human beings. They're measuring it by how impacted is it by human beings, and they think impact is bad. So I think this idea of the desire for power and restricting freedom goes very strongly with this hatred of human impact. If I, if I may jump in with a, a, a question of my own. Um, a lot of the anti-oil and gas um, movement is trying to shut down oil and gas by denying it private capital, by denying it investment, so-called ESG investing. What can be done to, to stop that? Because in a way that's far more potentially damaging than almost anything else that's being done. What can we do to combat that? So in terms of, yeah, I mean, it is, it is extremely extreme. I mean, oh, I would say one way I think of it is if you look at the, the continue, the, like the process by which we get oil and gas and a lot of other things, you know, let's take oil and gas. So there's an investment component, right? There's exploration and production. There's transportation, you know, midstream. There's refining. All of these things are under attack by government, and then some private attack as well. And so investment is the beginning of it, right? When invest, within, without investment, you have very little of the other stuff. And so the other side has very brilliantly attacked it at that level. And they've really gotten, I think they've, what they've been really brilliant at is getting the financial institutions to buy in, like BlackRock and State Street and Vanguard. Like this wasn't an initiative by the financial institutions. It was an initiative by the anti-fossil fuel movement that co-opted the financial institutions, particularly a guy named Bill McKibben, whom I, when he announced this campaign, which was initially called the divestment campaign, I actually public, I gave him, I had very little money at the time, but I raised $10,000 to get him to debate me, and I debated him at Duke University, which is where I went to school. I mean, well after I went to school there, but um, like I saw this as this is really dangerous, and unfortunately I was correct, because it is incredibly dangerous. So how do you counter it? I mean, there is this thing which some versions of I like and some I don't, but of like states are saying, hey, we're not going to invest our pension fund in you if you're going to keep doing this. That has actually been very effective. I have to admit that has been quite effective. I think more broadly, though, like the ESG movement needs to be shamed as incredibly harmful and in particularly obviously harmful to the billions of people who lack energy. And I think, I think one way of thinking of this and other issues is the fossil fuel issue, being against fossil fuels has been a moral monopoly position. I talk about this in chapter 11. Like a moral monopoly position where if you're against, if you just say I hate fossil fuels and I care about climate change, you get a halo over your head and you're a great person. 
And if you're pro-fossil fuels or you work in the industry, you get devil horns and you're evil. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to break the monopoly. So I don't feel like I need to persuade everyone. I just need to persuade people that there's a case on the other side. Because once people view there being two positions, they'll be open. They'll actually want debate. They'll actually consider different positions. And I think one way to do that is to make people think about, wait a second, what are these anti what bad consequences do they have? What benefits do they deprive people of? And the most obvious is the billions of people who lack energy not getting an opportunity because of these policies. So if you look at energytalkingpoints.com and you search ESG, a lot of my criticism is based on that. But I do think of it as shaming. Like in general, and, and it's good to shame things that are bad, but in general, like ESG, you can think of it as it's a very status-driven movement, like, and sort of, the, the thing you want to do to a bad status-driven movement is shame it. Because what they're after is being elevated. They want, unearned, they want unearned virtue, and so you need to give them earned shame. It's not enough to say, and I want to distinguish this from saying, oh, they're going too far, their heart's in the right place, like it's good, but that, you know, the noble ideal about it. No, it's like, no, this is bad. You're doing something, like Larry Fink, you are a bad force in the world. I, I'll tell you guys this, this is a secret, but... Uh, so don't share it with anyone. But in the not too distant future, I have a deck of cards coming out, which is, it's either called the blackout deck or the energy deniers, depending on trademark. Um, but it contains the 54 people most responsible for the energy crisis. So it's got like Larry Fink and Al Gore, and it's beautifully done anyway. Um, so anyway, that's coming out. And I just remember on Larry Fink, it's like, this is a profoundly destructive individual. It doesn't pull any punches. Um. Yes, yeah, so kind of a follow-up to, to his question. Um, have you seen any support? I mean, I'm, I'm in the EMP oil gas business, and uh, forever, it doesn't seem like we've ever had a really good message from the top. You, you know, you see our majors, major companies are um, going sort of to an ESG model, saying they're going to get to net neutral, you know, yeah. which is kind of counterintuitive to what they're trying to do from a business model. Yeah, kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> Not economic, well, not unless without subsidies, of course. But are you getting? Are you seeing any support from them to help kind of establish a message that hey, fossil aren't that bad after all? Well, see, it's interesting. I love your question until the last part of it, because you said fossil fuels aren't that bad after all. So, like, I really want to kind of encourage. I have a line that I'll say, like, my real job or a part of my real job is I help oil companies with their self-esteem issues. <laughs> and there's a thing like. Just say, and I, if I was an actual psychologist, I'd like, no, just say it's good. Don't say it's not, so, like, it's actually good. It's actually a good thing. Like a, a, you know, a drug that extended your life by 30 years and made you safe from everything, that's a good thing, even if it has side effects to it. Even if you want to reduce the side effects, it's still a good thing. So I would say that, yeah, I mean, in a couple of different ways. So one is, you know, my books have been quite widely read and influential within that. Their um, energy talking points dot com has helped a lot because people have um because it's made it easier for people to make the arguments so it just makes it like if you read a 400 page book and you sort of get it that's one thing but it's like people could just copy and paste my stuff and i very strongly encourage everyone to just rip me off all the time because that's what it's there for it's there to rip off it's all for everyone can copy it and use it so that's helped a lot and we've seen that i mentioned this fossil fuel the concert is being put on by a guy named adam anderson who had a really good letter a couple years ago um, and he mentioned me in connection with it, 
it was about to the North Face, and the North Face had refused to sell him jackets with his company's logo on it. And he wrote this very articulate letter for why I'm proud to be in this industry, and the North Face said nothing. I mean, they were basically publicly shamed. They had no response. Um, and there are some others, like a guy named Chris Wright, Liberty Oil Field Services, has, like, he published the first really good, quote, sustainability report, which I hate that name. Um, but he, like, he's explaining the benefits and making a lot of the same arguments I am. And then also I would say, um, you know, a lot of my work is just, I just, like, give, write speeches and give books. But we do a lot of work behind the scenes with elected officials. And people, people uh, sponsor that, that has sponsors, and a bunch of the sponsors are in industry. They have no control over it, but they're, and they're generally supportive of those efforts. So I think they're improving, but there's a long way to go. And in particular, the largest companies, I think, have been regressing the most. And I, I'm doing whatever I can to try to convince them. So I think there's some progress and some regress, but at least the best, the best people now are better than the best people 10 years ago. The worst people now are probably worse, too. And we've time for two more questions, um, gentlemen. Since carbon dioxide, CO2, is a plant food, is it not? Yes. If CO2 will help trees grow faster and help tree farmers um, harvest timber perhaps a year, cut their cycle a year shorter, um, and since CO2 will help uh, crops, food crops grow more abundantly, produce more abundant harvests, so we have food to sell to countries other than our own, and sell that, sell that food at cheaper prices to poor people around the world. <coughs> Would I be going too far to clamor for more CO2 emissions? Well, if you are a plant, Definitely, you wouldn't be going too far. Like well, one person put it, he was actually an oil guy. He said, if "Remember, if plants could vote, they'd vote for coal," which I thought was a clever way of putting it. Coal is the most CO2 generated per unit of energy. I think it's a good kind of sentiment. I think the thing I focus on is how to think about it, and so, and I think one very reasonable conclusion is that CO2. I think it's pretty certain so far it's been a net benefit because it's provided those benefits. There is a question of what is it, what will it be in the future? And I think there can be honest disagreement about this. I think it's very possible, maybe even probable, that it's a net benefit going forward. But because it's a warming gas, so what it can do is it, it can you know, affect storms in certain ways, can affect sea level rises, which if you have a warmer planet, seas rise faster. Again, it's, it turns out to be pretty slow, so it's not that big a deal. But nevertheless, like you need to be willing to think about what are negatives that can occur from warming. In general, I think a warmer planet with more CO2 is better, but there is some disruptiveness in changing at a given speed. So in my final analysis, I think it's probably net positive, but I'm not, I don't have the confidence in that that I have in how to think about it. So I think it's a good kind of, and you know, I have, I have a couple of people who write me a lot about this, and one of them that I like, he's always like, the green movement, it should be called the brown movement. Because it's like fossil fuels are really greening the planet, and they just want to make it brown. That's not not a bad point. I think, I, yeah. I think we've got time for one last question. Price. It might be too broad. Okay. Oh, it's not too broad. I mean, this is a different issue. Sure. Um, and this is I cover this in five. So you mean just the fact that it depletes? Well, so I mean, in a sense, everything depletes. So everything in the world is finite, including the sun, and so like. Life, I mean, the beautiful thing about capitalism, or one of the, I should say, one of the beautiful things, is that it always allows us to maximize 
our resource potential by doing whatever is most cost effective at a given time and progressively discovering new ways of what's most cost effective. So you look at like the oil that we used to power America in the 1800s, like all of that is gone. And the methods used then couldn't get us very much oil today probably. But we find new oil that's accessible and we develop different methods and now we can produce way more oil than we did back then. And there's 10 times more oil in the ground than has existed, than we've used in the entire history of civilization. So if we can develop better methods, we can get that. Or we can find better methods of turning coal and getting liquid hydrocarbon, which is basically oil out of that. So, and then at the same time, we can look into you know uranium and how do we get better at nuclear and how do we get rid of the irrational regulations on that. So um, the whole thing is people are worried about running out of resources or depleting resources. And the actual fear should be running out of freedom. Because when you run out of freedom, then what happens is you run out of resources. So some, some people are a little overly optimistic and they think like, well, I read Julian Simon, the human mind is the master resource or is the ultimate resource energy called the master resource. And so all these catastrophists are wrong and they're wrong if there's freedom. But if you take away freedom, you deplete available supply and you don't replenish it. This is what we're starting to see with fossil fuels. So I think, again, the real fear is running out of freedom and that causes you to run out of everything. So, um, and I guess that's a good final note for uh, supporting, you know, what this organization is doing. And I really appreciate you guys having me. And then also I'll be there to sign books. Please fill out your cards also so that we can stay in touch. If I could just finish with two thank yous. First of all, thank you, Alex, for coming along. It was wonderful to hear you. You're welcome. my thanks to you, to the support from people in this room, to the Mississippi Centre for Public Policy. It's thanks to your generosity and support that we're able to organise events like this. Thank you all so much for coming. We really appreciate it.